invite you to open up to Acts chapter 4. As you turn there, I want us to consider this idea that the Bible presents, that the reality is that the New Testament church is fulfilling the Old Testament people of God. And if you want to be convinced of this biblically, go home and study two books for me in every translation possible until you get it. <laughs> uh, the books of Galatians and the books of Hebrews. And then you can even read Romans chapter 4 if you have to. The ideas uh, are present in other books, but these two books are trying to get across to us that what the church is is what God's people in the Old Testament should have been. And even though I say New Testament church, to say it biblically, Paul calls the New Testament church Christ's body. In other words, Christ fulfills the Old Testament church. Christ fulfills Israel. And Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, the vineyard being the symbol for Israel. Christ says in that parable that the vineyard is being taken away from the wicked tenants and given to others, the others being Christ's body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 20 that every promise of God finds their yes in Christ. Paul says in Galatians, I told you to read the Galatians and to read Galatians, but he says in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, that is the new covenant in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's the Old Covenant, descendants of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Hebrews, I told you to read Hebrews, particularly chapter 8, verse 13, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, the author is making reference to the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And the entire chapter of Hebrews 8 is, or I should say much of Hebrews 8, is a quote from Jeremiah. But the Lord speaks of a new covenant, and in doing that, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The body of Christ, the true vine, the new covenant, are Abraham's offspring and are heirs according to the promise. And we're going to see that today because we're going to peel back the layers of Acts and realize that we're in some ways reading the book of Joshua. Are you ready for that? You're going to see history repeat itself in the new people of God. So I invite you to stand as we read from Acts chapter 4 and head into chapter 5 today. You're able to stand. Acts 4, beginning with verse 32, says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his home. But, uh, goodness. <laughs> Thank you. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, um, it's an understatement to say it's a challenge to open up these words and then preach. And so I pray that your spirit would be speaking truth into the hearts of each of us. Remind us today that not only are you worthy to be feared, but you're also our dad. And that whenever you speak to us, you speak to us as a father to his loving children. Father, for those who do not know you, they can't claim you as dad yet. And I pray that this will be the day that they come to know you. So, Father, have your way and say what it is that you desire. We pray against the enemy. We pray against um, the thoughts that we might have that want to reject your truth or think of something better than what you would say in your word. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We really start today in a passage that's primarily about community, but there is one small verse in that first section we read that's about proclaiming God, and so I'm going to do it out of order and pull out that verse 33. Which said, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. As we've been going through Acts, Luke has already been doing this, but I want us to hear this word power and note that Luke is in fact showing us that the apostles are living out the Great Commission, fulfilling the promise and the prediction that Jesus gave during his ascension, what did Jesus say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit is upon the apostles and bringing that power. And they are bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now I, I hope and pray that I preach the cross of Christ, but the cross is lost of its power without the resurrection of Christ. 
Because see, if Christ just died, so what? <laughs> we claim he took our sin and died. We have no hope if, and his life was of no greater value or perfection than our lives if he stayed dead. We said that he could have done lots of miracles. We, he could have said a lot of profound things. But at the end of the day, if he stays dead, then he's not a substitute on everybody's behalf because he was a sinner just like the rest of us. So the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's why it's not only in the cross we are justified, but Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, that, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and then raised for our justification. It is in the resurrection we find our hope of being justified, and it's in the eyewitness resurrection that the first church boasted. Righteousness with God was and is found in his resurrection. And I say that to begin with because you need that to hear the rest of the message. You really need that. Coupled with a powerful eyewitness testimony is quite the community. In fact, it is the second of seven progress reports, if you will, of the church in the book of Acts. The first progress report encountered was at the end of Acts 2, and it's very similar to this passage. You can look at that later, but for now, look at verses 32, 34, and 35 with me here in Acts 4. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We jump down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now I'll just tell you up front that every commentary, every study Bible I had all made mention in their notes, this is not communism. So there you go, it's not communism. Why? Because it's voluntary, it's not enforced. Peter or the apostles are not demanding this to be a part of their church. And we'll see that especially as Peter talks to Ananias. But instead of preaching to the choir, and let's all laugh at the possibility of this being communism, let us take note of what this is and see how we compare with what the passage is suggesting. What this is, is such a strong community that personal ownership is outweighed by the needs of others. You hear that? Personal ownership is outweighed by the needs of others. Ouch. <laughs> and this is where we start reaching back into the Old Testament to verify for us that the people of God here in Acts are finally fulfilling the Old Covenant. See what the law laid out for the people of God in Deuteronomy 15. It says if if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And verses 10 and 11 would also say, excuse me, verses 10 and 11 would also say, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be begrudging when you give to him because the Lord... Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. 
Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, the need, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. The New Testament church is the people of God, and they are fulfilling what God had in mind for his people back here in Deuteronomy. And for the church, it was a need-by-need, need or a case-by-case case basis. Verse 34, literally translated, would say, For there was not anyone among you them who did lack, for as many as were possessors of fields or houses, selling them, were bringing the prices of the things sold. So it's not that every Christian just sold their property and started building up this benevolent fund, but rather as a need arose, perhaps the family would sell a field or a house and say, well, I can meet that need. And so there was not a needy person among them. In other words, it would be unreasonable to be both a believer in Christ, part of his body and his community, and to also be in one. The body of Christ takes care of itself. And I want you to know, and I believe that that's what Woodland Friends strives to be. I'm not saying we're the best church on planet Earth at this. But you're here, your family, you're taken care of. By God's grace and by his body here, you're taken care of. That's what we're hoping to be. But the body of Christ still has sinners. And it still has selfish people. Because though the ideal is explained, Luke, our author, now moves to talk about two examples in the church. A good example who exemplified what he just laid out about the community covering each other's needs, followed by a bad example. The good example is to be found in a man named Barnabas. We read, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, and I was writing this down on the outline yesterday, and I put down Barabbas, and I said that would be a bad mistake to make. <laughs> Joseph was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're actually going to be, meet Barnabas more later on in the book of Acts, so I'm not going to do a lot of background about this guy, but what is intriguing is Luke calls this man a Levite. And that's intriguing because if you know your Old Testament, Levites were not to own land. They were to be priests at a temple, at the temple, and living off the goodwill of others. But here's a Levite who does, whenever he has land, he gives it away for others. Now, we don't know how or why to think about having land, and I'm sure many scholars split hairs and had headaches over it. But some suggest that after all Israel had went through by being conquered, deported, and conquered, that maybe this has been a practice that was largely shirked by, by Israel, and suddenly it's socially acceptable for Levites to own land, not saying it's acceptable before God. Others think that Barnabas may have been buying and selling land for business. He never owned it, as it were. Others say, well, maybe he inherited land on his wife's side of the family. And still others say, well, Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. And some say maybe he held land where the prohibition did not occur in Cyprus. And so that's where he did all of his dealings. Whatever the case is, though, Luke's point is, here's a good example. <laughs> Just like I laid it out. Here's a man who, who had a field, brought all of the money, and said to the apostles, this is for the church. This is to take care of people. Well, now we enter into a not-so-shining example, followed in a couple found in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira 
sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, knowing how this episode concerning these people ends, we often have a not-so-happy feeling about this, right? Just me, I guess. I mean, is this the loving, merciful, patient, gracious God that we know? But I want to suggest something bigger is being played out by this account of the first church drama, and it has to do with this first church really fulfilling or being the people of God as the people of God were in the Old Testament. First, I want to give you an example of what I'm about to do, and then I'll do it. So we went through Mark as a church a few years ago. And ever so often, I'd have these sermons where I'd connect Old Testament realities with New Testament realities. And the clearest picture that I can think of in Mark was this funny little passage in Mark 6 where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. But then Mark goes through agonizing detail of the orders. It really throws you off guard if you read it. In Mark 6, verse 7, it says, And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then this is what was funny to me. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Thanks, Mark. I needed to know that. At first glance, we ask, why all the odd details? Right? It's as if I say to you, okay, church, we're going to leave today, be the church, make sure you wear blue polo shirts, I want to see nice Nike shoes, and have your car keys in hand. Very specific. It's specific because the Holy Spirit, I believe, was trying to connect something here. And it begins to make sense when we open up to Exodus, to the account of the first Passover, and we read in Exodus 12, verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it, the Passover meal, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The point being is that Jesus was using words to tell the disciples to be dressed for haste, for speed, don't use two tunics, carry nothing, no bread, no bag, have sandals. And so were the Israelites on the night of the Passover to have their belt fastened, to have their sandals and staff ready to go, to eat in haste, because the Israelites at Passover were supposed to be ready to go after the Passover happened. They're leaving. God's delivering them. And so with the disciples, I believe Jesus, Mark, and the Holy Spirit were stating, this is Passover 2.0. Jesus is bringing God's kingdom, and it's as big as Passover. Why did I bring you this tangent? We can miss another Old Testament reflection here with Ananias and Sapphira. Because after the Passover... And after Moses came a man named Joshua. Joshua had been with Moses. Joshua and his community had been successful at a city called Jericho. You maybe remember that story about marching around the walls of Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, do it seven times and bring the walls down. But then they came to a city called Ai. And there they failed because a man named Achan didn't destroy everything at eye, but rather in direct disobedience he kept some of the good. After Jesus in the second Passover is a man named Peter. Peter had been with Jesus. We have a shining example with Barnabas, followed by another man who starts with the letter A, Ananias. The words here in Acts 5.2, it said, He kept back for himself some of the proceeds, particularly he kept back for himself 
are used only twice in the New Testament and once in the Old Testament Greek translation, which is what Peter would have had. You want to guess where it was in the Old Testament? In Joshua 7, verse 1, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan gives all of his descendants, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Took some. Is where the Greek would have been that same word. And the other time it's used in the New Testament is Titus 2.10, where the ESV reads pilfering. So what this is for Ananias and Sapphira are proceeds that they had consecrated to the Lord, and then they kept it for themselves. It probably looked like this. Ananias saw Barnabas' example. Others were moved to do the same thing and wanted to be counted among the super disciples themselves, wanting to draw attention to their so-called holiness, said aloud, I have a property over here. We're selling it, and we're going to give it to the church. Woohoo! Yay! Look at you, Ananias and Sapphira. And then when the property was sold and the money was in hand, that's a lot of money. But they don't want to be criticized. They don't want to be held accountable. And so they go about their plans with one minor, unspoken, unannounced change. We're going to keep some of that money, but tell no one because, hey, we're holy people bringing in all the proceeds to the work of the Lord. Did the Lord want $50,000 as opposed to 40000 that they brought? Was the Lord not pleased? Did he need more money? Money has no bearing here. The money is not the problem. God would take a penny from a genuine widow over thousands of dollars from a guy who has money to spare, but he's doing it to show off. Money is not the problem here, but, but Peter diagnoses what the problem is for us. He says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Ananias and Sapphira were not lying to people, they were lying to God. Trying to pull a fast one over God. Not only is this laughable because of the logic of it, I didn't think the maker of the universe, who knows all human hearts, would see this one coming. <laughs> but more so, it's deplorable and abhorrent. Because this is the sovereign God, the one who who came from heaven to our fallen earth and allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, and God allowed himself to die on our behalf, yet here are Ananias and Sapphira posing as worshippers. And in their minds, they probably are believers and worshippers, and they would dare make a vow. We're selling the land for God. Look at our righteousness. Woo-hoo! 
and then say, well, God won't mind, and let's not make a deal out of the money we're keeping. He understands. Yet then they have the audacity to come before his body in a pretense and say, look at us, fulfilling our promises. You didn't think we'd do it, did you? I don't know the exact words, whether it was those words or not, but that was the heart. Hypocrites. God is not a pagan Gentile God that winks at it because, hey, we all struggle with money, I understand. God is not to be mocked with fake righteousness because it's not righteousness. And still we say, but that's mean, death. And, like it still is today, our fault, Peter told Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to God, but to man. In other words, you had tons of time to do what you know was right. And in fact, there was a right way to get here with the money you wanted in hand and the money you were comfortable with giving to the church in the church. There was a way to do all these things without trying to rob God or lie to God and put on a front of holiness and therefore make God smaller than he is. Have a little respect for God. That's the problem here. Do you hear that? (laughs) See, there was a way for Ananias and Sapphira to have their cake and eat it too. But the route that they decided to take was to pump up their own image of holiness at the expense of God's dignity. Saying that they're giving God everything and nobody knows what they're lying about except for themselves, they think. They They obviously must have believed that God did not know. And so they lost their lives. Well, this might bring up a few questions. Is this typical of God to just take lives like that? Some have have presented, well, there's Old Testament God. He's in his junior high years, and he's very angry, and he's very emotional. And then there's New Testament God. He grew up, and he just hands out muffins and hugs people. And what I'm saying is God is revealing here that the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. The last verse, I believe, was the desired result. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Because here's the thing. Jesus is both God and man. And God is both tough and tender. Our Lord is both master of the universe and we get to call Daddy, but at the same time we dare not lose our awe over His majesty, nor should we lose our warmth and love over his familiarity. The wages of sin is death. Now, some would say, but that doesn't answer why God seems more wrathful in the Old Testament than in the New. A few things. First of all, the Old Testament covers roughly 4,000 years of history, and the New Testament covers anywhere from 60 to 90 years of history. God intervening to bring death of a deserving sinner may show up more in a survey of a 4,000 years. Secondly, in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 23, we find the death of another sinner because, quote, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 11 that many Christians in Corinth were ill, if not dead, precisely because they were partaking in the Lord's Supper without discerning their bodies. In other words, they were doing it emptily without considering the reasons nor genuinely professing their faith in Christ for salvation. The point being is our God is a holy God and he wants a holy people. And so at the death of Ananias and Sapphira, 
we find the whole church in great fear. And in fact, a few verses later, which we will cover next time, but let us note that none of the rest dared join them. Why? Because God is quite literally dead serious. That's the most practical way I can say it. He's quite literally dead serious. See, we heard from Luke 14 earlier this morning, Jesus was calling disciples. He wasn't calling people to say, come here, sign a dotted line, and just wait to die, I'll take care of the rest. He said, who wants to be my disciple? You must love me more than the rest. Our life together must be the most important thing. And because we're unholy people, saved by a holy God to be holy with him. The human nature, the selfish attorney inside of us wants to rebel and say, but that's so demanding. <laughs> and it's so costly and it's not worth it. And so Acts 5.13 explains the tension in us personally because none of the rest dared join them. It's too costly. It's too high. Their God holds them to too high standards. But then the rest of 5.13 says, but the people held them in high esteem. Why? Because the church is the holy people of God. What the Old Testament covenant was supposed to be is what the New Testament church of God is being. Christ has come and lived in his people and he purifies his people. And there is no one in need among the believers when they are the conquering the holy land of the new covenant by fulfilling the great commission, going to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And another Achan is in their midst Keeping the devoted things, there is no tolerance for that because God wants a holy people. And I know we come to church to feel better about ourselves, but this is the message today. <laughs> the only thing I can make it easier for you is to say, first of all, know this, I have no business saying what I'm about to say. I'm throwing myself at God's mercy saying, thank you, you have not done to me what you did to Ananias and Sapphira. Because Ananias and Sapphira lived among Jesus' first church and you and I live among Jesus' first church. The rules are the same, folks. God can still do this. So hear me whenever I say, I'm Ananias. I'm Sapphira. In some way, shape, or form, I believe I have been here, hypocritical, thinking little of God's kingdom, thinking I can somehow skirt around His holiness. So I've been asking myself, and I would encourage you to ask yourself, are my sins like Ananias and Sapphira, like Achan and Joshua's people, are my sins bringing shame to God's people and anger to God himself? Do I have a hypocrisy that smells of Ananias and Sapphira? Do I show up to the church and try to preach sermons and try to lay out a call for holiness and obedience, but deep down I hide my own selfish motivations? Would I dare to presume to accept commendations for good sermons. Kevin, Kevin, you're a good servant. Kevin, you're a good old boy. And, and would I dare accept that openly without confessing and without being transparent? That save the grace of God, I would be damned. Save the love of God, I would be dead like Ananias and Sapphira. I preach and witness and testify to God's grace, His love and His mercy because that's all I have. That's all I could ever hope to be is to, but saved by his love, grace, and mercy, and his spirit must live in me, and his spirit must be the one who speaks to you, because I have nothing to give. You and I serve a majestic, holy, and righteous God, but we also serve a loving, merciful, gracious Father. 
And you and I dare not hide our sins, our motives, and our hypocrisy from God. But we would run and we would do well to hide under the cross of Christ and there glorify Him. May we as the people of God strive to enter His rest. And may we, because of Christ and because of His Holy Spirit and because of He living in us and His holiness, making it through our sinful selves somehow, may we only be held in a high esteem because of what Christ does and what Christ is through us. Amen. I think it would be appropriate for us to to come to this place at the end of the message and see the holiness of God met by the love of God through Christ, that we would leave here today thankful for that unlike Ananias and Sapphira, he has taken the life of Jesus on our behalf. And I love this song, My Tribute, and I would ask the musicians to come forward and let's sing this song together. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Father, since um, since I've had Calvin and I'm having another one, it's really changed my perspective on how you deal with your children. Father, I don't think I could ever kill someone. Help us to hold and balance this, this duality that you love us like a father who loves his children, but you are fiercely jealous for soul devotion. Not because you're served by human hands, but because really it's what's best for our life. It's, it's painful to think that Ananias and Sapphira saw your beautiful kingdom and saw a couple of extra dollars and went for the dollars. Help us to desire you above all things because it's what's best for our soul. It's what's most satisfying. Father, I, I thank you again that you have become sin and death for us on the cross. And help us to not take that lightly. Help us to know that every time we are tempted with sin, help us to envision your son up there dying for our behalf, because it's what that does. And help us to desire your kingdom above all things and to desire you. Father, we pray that as we go out this week, that we would be true disciples of Jesus, true friends, where in fact you say that you are my friends if you do what I command. Help us to do what you command and to be obedient. Give us the power and the spirit to do so. And when we trip and fall, help us to rely all the more on your mercy and grace, because it's always there for the taking. Father, we thank you and we love you, and we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.